Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Drs. Anise Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Chagpar is Associate Professor of Surgical Oncology and Director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. Dr. Higgins is Professor of Therapeutic Radiology and of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences. And Dr. Gore is Director of Hematological Malignancies at Smilo and an expert in myelodysplastic syndromes. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join the conversation, you could submit questions and comments to canceranswers at yale.edu, where you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. Tonight, you'll hear a conversation about prostate and urologic cancers with Dr. Michael Hurwitz. Dr. Hurwitz is Assistant Professor of Medicine in the Section of Medical Oncology at Yale School of Medicine. Here's Dr. Susan Higgins. So why don't we start off with just talking about how you got interested in this field? Yeah, so uh, oncology, actually, I got interested in college uh, just because I was studying biochemistry and we were learning about cell biology and, and someone randomly gave a lecture on oncology and it was so much more interesting than any of the other stuff that I immediately was interested in that. Uh, and then, you know, after med school, I was sort of, again, I was still aiming to do oncology. And then urologic oncology, um, that wasn't until later, but there, the diseases are very interesting and the patient populations are are people I'm interested in, in, you know, dealing with. So uh, I don't know. I think there are lots of different parts of oncology I could be interested in, but I think urologic is particularly interesting because it's really a wide range of diseases. Uh, You know, there's prostate, which is really all male. Uh, There's bladder, which is more of a mix. And there's kidney, which is more of a mix. And they're really, the biology is very different from all of them. The treatments are very different for all of them. Uh, And it's just a, a, a very interesting field for that reason, I think. You know, in our previous show, Steve and I were talking about, uh, I think that people don't realize, even though you're a medical oncologist with a subspecialized interest in um, urologic cancers, there's so much within that group. And maybe you can expand upon that because people hear about prostate cancer all the time. But when we talk about urologic cancers, it's sort of a family of cancers, right? Yeah, absolutely. So... uh you know, again, starting with prostate, since it's the most most common. Uh, so that's a, a a disease that, again, obviously it only affects men because only men have prostates. Yep. Uh, and uh, that's a little unusual in cancers because um, there are really two to three different classes of it. There's the prostate cancer that almost every man will eventually get. So by the time men reach 80 in America, probably 75% of them have some cancer. Uh, Most of that is irrelevant. It's never going to go anywhere, not going to be a problem. But then there's a small group within that where it's a real problem where it can, you know, even kill you. And that's why prostate cancer is the, I think, the fourth leading cause of death amongst cancer in America. Uh, And so it's a very interesting disease because there's a a real broad range um, of, of of presentation and a broad range of once it does present how it's going to affect you. Uh, bladder cancer is not as common, but it's actually uh, what people don't know probably is that it's one of the most expensive cancers in America uh, because uh, it turns out that with bladder cancer, at least half the time or about half the time, if you develop one, um, and even if they take it out, you'll develop more within the bladder. And because of that, people who get an early stage bladder cancer, which we can cure just by taking out, or when I say we, it's not me, it's a urologist, yeah. um, 
those people have to get screened with looking into the bladder with a scope, kind of like a colonoscopy, but it's a cystoscopy into the bladder every three months forever. Um, and so that's has its own challenges. And kidney cancers are, are really a totally different class. Um, and we used to not discover them that often. Now we discover them a lot more because that's another disease where a lot of the times it's not that significant and it's growing slowly and not doing much. And you get a stomach ache because you've been, you know, eating too much Chipotle or, mm-hmm. or something. And they get to do a CAT scan. They find, a, you know, something in your kidney. So that really is also a very different sort of challenges and, and treatments. And kidney cancer, unlike most cancers, really isn't treated with chemotherapy. So that's, a, that's totally different treatments are used for that. Um, and the one I didn't mention, by the way, that's also um, frequent is testicular cancer, which, again, that's only males. And it's also much more common amongst very young people, you know, teens and young men. So that's a very different population, um, mostly curable, which is great. Um, but again, so so very different. So just going back to prostate cancer, you, you alluded to one of the really fascinating parts of prostate cancer, which is there's a whole range in terms of the, the characteristics or severity of disease. And for some men, uh, prostate cancer is going to be sort of maybe a chronic disease that they live with that never affects their lifespan. And for other men, it will be a much more significant health problem. Could you kind of give the listeners a, a sense of why that is? Yeah, and it's it's a really important point for patients because I think, well, I'll say that, again, there's a, there's a large population where it doesn't matter that much. I'll get into that. There's a small population where it's really significant and it's, it's, it, it can grow very fast and be deadly. Then there's sort of a middle ground where it's still, you're going to have to treat it but people can live a very long time. And there's a lot in the web out there about all these different groups, and it's very, very hard for patients to figure out where they stand. So I have patients who come in with a prostate cancer that we know from is very unlikely to affect their lives at all, and they could ignore it, and they want extremely aggressive treatment because they've read the stuff on the web about people with advanced cancer who are dying of it. And then you have people coming in who already have advanced cancer that has spread to other parts of the body, we know it's going to be extremely dangerous from the, for them, and they don't want to do anything because they've read the stuff on the web saying, oh, everybody's got prostate cancer. So um, so going back to, to what you asked, you know, the, the prostate is this organ. It's a, it's a little organ that sits underneath the bladder. The, the urethra goes through it, and so you urinate, urination goes through it, and a lot of men have prostates that get larger with age and it, it, they have problems urinating and that's not cancer that's something usually called benign prostatic hypertrophy but then also prostate cancer apparently develops sort of as a as normal aging at least in american men and so as i said sort of by the time you're 50 probably a third to a half of men have a little bit of prostate cancer in there by the time you're 80 three quarters of men do and most of that just won't ever do anything it's cancer based on the fact that under a microscope, when we looked at it, look at it, it's cancer. The cells are growing abnormally, but they're never going to go anywhere. And we do have ways of testing whether they're likely to go anywhere or not. It, it's not perfect, but we have a pretty good idea for a lot of these. Then there are the ones that you look at under the microscope, they're aggressive. Maybe they've already spread a little bit outside of the prostate through something called the prostate capsule. These are ones that we know will be more aggressive, and they need to be treated with either surgery or you can uh, use radiation uh, to treat them. And then um, the other thing that I didn't mention, but it's very important, is that prostate cancers, uh, the reason they grow, well, well, I shouldn't say that. 
prostate cancers and prostate tissue depends on something to grow. In fact, every cell in the body depends on something to grow. If you take human cells out of the body, they just die on their own unless you give them something called a growth factor. And the growth factor for prostate cancer is something called testosterone, um, which is very similar. So for example, in breast cancer, women need estrogen for a lot of their tumors to grow. So, so often we try to remove testosterone from, from men. Basically, we can chemically remove it. And so a lot of people have to be on those medications for many years because we know that without them, the prostate cancer will grow. And so it's so interesting that you mentioned that because I think a lot of people are not familiar with this idea of what we call androgen deprivation as an actual therapy that's targeting the, the prostate cancer. And it's a, it's a very interesting part of what you do. Maybe you can just describe what and, androgen deprivation is about. Yeah, so, so, yeah, so it goes back to this idea that every cell in the body needs something to survive. Um, uh, you know, uh, it, it's very important for cells in the body not to be free agents. You don't want them dividing on their own. It's a very, very bad idea. And it's not that big a deal since we have so many cells if one or two die. But if they live when they're not supposed to, that's a real issue. So the prostate, the primary thing that tells prostate cells to survive is this stuff called testosterone or androgen. Androgen and testosterone, we, we use the term relatively interchangeably. And um, most, most of it is made by the testicles. Uh, and the, the brain actually sends out signals that eventually lead to the testicles making testosterone. We know that prostate cancer cells, because they originally were prostate cells that have sort of gone wrong, they too are usually dependent upon testosterone. Occasionally they're not, but for the most part they are. And therefore, if you remove testosterone from the body, they will shrink and many of them won't grow for a long, long time. And the way we do that is basically we, we send out signals sort of like the brain does to tell the, tes the testicles to stop making it. Um, and that's, we usually use a medication called Luperlide. There are some other ones like that. Um, and then there are some other pills that we use that uh, people may have heard of them called Casadex or Bicalutamide. Those work a little differently, but they also prevent the testosterone from telling the cells to divide and grow. And then there are newer therapies that if you're you're hearing about prostate cancer, you'll know from the web, uh, that are more effective than the pills. They're newer type pills that are stronger. And one of them works to decrease the amounts of testosterone, and one of them works to decrease, to um, block the testosterone from working where it normally works. So, so, so this is, you know, obviously, the management of prostate cancer, one of the things that's always fascinated me is there's a little bit of art and a little bit of science. You, When you meet with a patient, I know as a radiation oncologist, when I, in my career, earlier in my career, when I had to spend time discussing prostate cancer and this concept of weightful watching, we're talking about therapies, but then there's this concept of, you know, well, I'm sorry, watchful waiting, right. where we will basically and it's a little bit uh, not in keeping with everyone's idea of how we manage cancer, we actually don't treat it, but we monitor. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that watchful right. waiting process. Yeah, so, so we've changed the name. Um, uh, oh. and, and no, no, it's a really, no, I mean, I'm glad you brought it up because we, we try not to use that term because it, it implies that we're just waiting and not doing anything. So we've changed the name to active observation or active surveillance. And it is active because what we're really doing is Again, there, there are sort of criteria that we use to decide whether it's likely that a prostate cancer is going to grow and cause problems. And the criteria that we use are, we look at where it is in the prostate. So and the way we do this is by a biopsy. 
Unlike a lot of cancers, it's not so easy to find prostate cancer within the prostate. We're better at it now because we can use MRI testing. That's still somewhat experimental. They're doing a lot of that at Yale, in fact. There's a guy named Preston Sprankle, who's one of our urologists who does a lot of that. But, um, but, but by our standards methods, you can't really tell where in the prostate the prostate cancer is. So when you get a prostate biopsy, they, do, they randomly biopsy different parts of it. So you may be asking, why do you get a prostate biopsy anyway? And the answer is usually that you've had a PSA test, um, which we didn't get into, but it's probably worth talking about. So a PSA test is a blood test you can get, and PSA is something produced by prostate cells, and usually at higher levels by prostate cancer cells that you can find in the blood. And if your PSA is rising, that is often an indication that there's prostate cancer. So for most patients, you get a PSA test, it shows up as elevated, and then they'll do a prostate biopsy. And that prostate biopsy will look all over the prostate. They do 12 different little chunks they take out of the, of the prostate. And then a pathologist looks at them under the microscope. And then what we do is we use a combination of just how high that PSA test is, how many of those biopsies actually showed us, uh, had tumor in them, and what the tumor looked like. So we have pathologists who will look at the tumor under a microscope and say, this looks aggressive or this doesn't look aggressive. And then the combination of those things can tell us often whether this thing is likely to spread or not. And when it looks like it's not likely to spread at all, then we often do this thing where we say, here's what we're going to do. We're going, and we're going to observe you, but actively. We're going to keep checking PSAs. We're probably going to biopsy you again in a year or two, but we're not going to treat you. And the reason has to do with this idea, remember, that 80% of men, you know, or 75% of men who are 80 years old have this. And the vast majority of them, they're not going to suffer from prostate cancer. And the treatments that we do are not benign. So either surgery or radiation both have a fair number of side effects. And so we really want to avoid those if there's no reason to do that. Well, uh, thanks so much for that, and I can't wait till we get back to our discussion. But right now, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about prostate and urologic cancers with Dr. Michael Horwitz. There are over 13 million cancer survivors in the United States and over 100,000 here in Connecticut. Completing treatment is an exciting milestone, but cancer and its treatment can be a life-changing experience. Following treatment, cancer survivors can face several long-term side effects of cancer, including heart problems, osteoporosis, fertility issues, and an increased risk of second cancers. Resources for cancer survivors are available at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers to help keep cancer survivors focused on healthy living. The Survivorship Clinic at Yale Cancer Center focuses on providing guidance and direction to empower survivors to maximize their health, quality of life, and longevity. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Susan Higgins, and I'm here with my guest, Dr. Michael Hurwitz, talking about prostate and neurologic cancers. Um, maybe we could start off talking about the team approach because really I think what we as oncologists now feel is the standard of care is to have multidisciplinary tumor boards where we discuss a patient's case and then decide on a game plan. Uh, and it's really a, a large number of people that are behind the scenes that patients don't even see who are, are working on their behalf to put together their treatment plan. Um, and I thought maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree that the team approach is vitally important. Um, so, so, and 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 the the components that you alluded to um, are uh, so you got. Uh, your, I'll start with me. So you have a medical oncologist who often isn't the starting point at all. Um, in, in, in urologic malignancies, so there's going to be a medical oncologist, there's going to be a radiation oncologist, uh, and, and again, for, for example, prostate cancer central to, to treatment of disease that hasn't yet spread, and for people who, who need palliation, vital, and that's also true for renal cell carcinoma and for bladder cancer, um, and for certain types of testicular, so radiation, you know, vitally important. Surgeons, um, in our case, they're urologists, though I should point out that uh, it, it can also be lots of other types of surgeons. So, f- for example, um, there are patients who require complex surgeries. They'll have a urologist. They'll have, um, if it's metastatic cancer to the liver, we'll have a liver specialist. We'll have vascular specialists. I mean, it's a, it's a whole thing. And then, um, and then we have the radiologists who are unbelievably important because they can tell us where lesions are. They can tell us if lesions are changing. Uh, you know, we, we, those are, they're vital. And, and last but certainly not least are the pathologists. And these are the guys who actually tell us what we're looking at. In the end, in cancer, you, you know, you can see a mass on a CAT scan. You can take the mass out. But unless you know what it look like, looks like under the microscope, you don't know what you're treating. Uh, and... Um, pathology has become much more than that, of course, because they're also looking at the molecular details of these cancers, which in, in modern practice completely changes what you do. So, uh, so it's it's really five groups at, at the baseline for multidisciplinary care, and um, we have our tumor board every week, uh, and we have lots of cases from us. People from the community can bring cases in too. Yeah, and uh, I, I like the the fact that you mentioned the pathologist because we know sort of not all prostate cancer cells are created equally, and this um, grade that people read about, I'm sure a lot on the internet when they look at the words prostate cancer, up comes Gleason grade, and it's it's a rather complex notion for a person who's not a pathologist. Maybe you could just talk about that a little bit. Yeah, the Gleason grade uh, is um, a <clears throat> it is is a great example of why you need pathologists who really know what they're doing, uh, which is not so easy. So a Gleason grade is based on this this pathologist Gleason came up with it, and basically he would when he would, he looked under the microscope at prostate cancers, he said, okay, I notice that there are five different levels of badness in cancer. There's level one, which looks eh, a little bit bad. And there's level five, which looks, you know, demonic, just terrible, terrible cancer. And what he did was he said, so when I look at all the cancer that I see in all the biopsy specimens, I'm going to say what the most common of those is. Like I see a lot of level three, then I'll call it a three. And then if I see the second most common that I see is a level four, then I'll call that a three plus four. So Gleason grading goes from two to 10, because in theory, you could have all one. So a one plus a one is a two, or you could have all five. Five plus five is 10. What we use nowadays, it's turned into basically, we really call cancer three plus three or greater. So Gleason grading goes from six to 10, okay? Three plus three up to five plus five. Um, Anything three plus three is good for the most part. And if it's localized in the prostate, that's good risk. Uh, Seven, three plus four, four plus three, are, are in the intermediate range, and anything more than that is, is pretty high risk. Yeah, and, and I think that the average person doesn't even realize perhaps that there are so many 
different subspecialties, even within pathology. And I know from uh, treating gynecologic malignancies for many, many years that the people who do that more do it better because there's a lot of uh, nuance. And actually, I'm on the NCCN panel uh, for gynecologic cancers. And, and on these national guidelines, we're actually now including things at the beginning of the de- decision tree is get an expert pathologist. And there are certain areas I think we would agree as uh, oncologists like prostate, sarcoma, lymphoma, gynecologic malignancies, the people who are at what we would consider high volume centers where they see a lot of this um, are, are just going to have more expertise to, to offer and, and uh, experience to lend to that process. So I'm, I'm really glad you discussed the pathologist who is behind the scenes and doesn't see the patient, but again, in our multidisciplinary setting is a really a core member of the team. Um, and the other person, the imaging people, again, similar concept, people who do more of this type of imaging, especially the highly specialized MRIs that we were just discussing, are uh, really sub-sub-specialists who have very particular expert expertise. Maybe you could discuss the MRI and how it's working into the equation now. Yeah, so... Um yeah, first of all, I couldn't agree more with all of that. I, I have to say that I, I lecture to med students sometimes, and I explain to them that I, I was the worst pathology med student in the planet, and now I'm completely and utterly dependent upon them. They're like the most important people in my life. Uh, so, so the MRI though is something sort of new in prostate cancer. There, as you you sort of um, you didn't allude to it, but I will. Yeah. So PSA testing is quite controversial now, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that the data are are more and more coming out on the side of PSA testing should absolutely be offered to patients. They don't have to de- take it, but I'm, I, I think it's the data are quite convincing. That's my opinion, mm-hmm. but, but and I think that's the general opinion of most medical oncologists who do this and most uh, urologists who do this. And I didn't mention, by the way, there are also newer urine tests, for example, that look for molecular changes in the prostate cancer that might also help with this. So it's, it's also gone into the uh, you know, we, we've gotten into the 21st century. So. Again, moving in that direction of personalized medicine. That's true also, uh, yes. Yeah. Let's figure out who needs the treatment, how much, and specifically what type on an individual basis. And in that in that direction, the personalized medicine-specific targeted therapies, I was wondering if you could just give us your view on what are the more uh, exciting and important developments having happening on the sort of on the forefront and the frontiers of research in your area. I would say that they're, they're, so, so in prostate, it's, it's, I'm going to talk about prostate next if I talked about it at all. I think that in bladder cancer and kidney cancer, there are, there's some very exciting things happening. Bladder cancer is a disease that, again, it's not as common, not as well known to people. Uh, a lot of it can be cured if caught locally. But if not, it is really uniformly lethal. No one, there, there's almost no survival if it is if it is spread, much like lung cancer and pancreatic cancer. Uh, and we have chemotherapy that can often shrink the tumors, but but it doesn't work forever. And uh, we had not had any new treatments really in about ten years, uh, at least. And over the last year or two, some really exciting things have come out that using the immune system to attack this has become has has been shown to work for a lot of patients. Uh, and specifically, there was a medication. It's still called I think there, it has a name now, but it was called MPDL thirty two eighty A, and it was a medication. It was an antibody that, uh, when infused into people, would basically turn on T cells, part of the immune system, that were not activated and allowed them to attack the cancer. And in patients who had certain molecular 
details of their cancers. They expressed something called PDL1 at high level on their cancer cells when they made that. Those patients, uh, I think over half of them uh, would have tumor shrinkage, and some of that could last in a very, very long time. And that's the first really big advance in many, many years, and I'm hoping that it's going to be an advance that will continue on. And in kidney cancer, the same sort of thing. We're seeing very exciting results with therapies aimed at these same uh exact mechanisms. Yeah, I think we all agree that the immunotherapies, which are now being used with great success in melanoma, are really some of the most exciting therapies that we've seen in in many, many years. Um, So it's great to hear that we'll be able to to offer those. And do you have trials right now that are running with those immunotherapies? Yeah, so, so in bladder right now, we actually don't. But we have in our phase one group some immunotherapies, and so with bladder cancer, sometimes you can get into the phase one trials. Um, in kidney cancer, we do. We have uh, two trials open uh, right now for early stage. And uh, what about side effects? Uh, what are you seeing with the immune immunotherapies in general? What kind of side effects do people have? Yeah, so so the immune side effects that you see from these therapies, the, the, the side effects that you see are really sort of what we would expect because it's you're, you're activating the immune system in a way that it's not normally activated. So uh, backtracking a little bit about why these things work at all, you know, um, every time that you get a cut, you, your immune system turns on in that area because you get foreign stuff getting in. The immune system is supposed to prevent that foreign stuff from causing infections. And that's fine. But at some point, you want it turned off, right? If you get too much of this stuff, you get inflammation everywhere. And that can cause what's called autoimmunity, where your own cells get attacked. Uh, and, 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 and it turns out that cancers sort of use the fact that we have the, that we automatically turn things off to turn off the immune system from attacking them. And what we're doing with these medications, this new class of drugs that are called checkpoint immune checkpoint inhibitors, is doing exactly that. We're turning off that break. And it's great because it attacks the cancer cells, but yeah, you get autoimmunity. Now, most people don't, actually. But between, depending on the therapies, between you know 10 and 20% of people do. And the, what you often see, so the most common side effects are something called immune colitis, where the colon is attacked and people get bad diarrhea, sometimes even bleeding, and often they have to go into the hospital. uh, And we have to give them uh, something called steroids, which sort of calms down the immune system for a certain amount of time. So that's probably the most common one. Other common ones are your thyroiditis. So the thyroid can get attacked. You can become hypothyroid, which again is very common in in, in the population. Uh, And that's you can basically give people thyroid hormone, which protects them against that, but uh, not against that, but makes it okay. But yeah, so thyroiditis is common. Um, pneumonitis, which is lung, uh, the lung can get attacked, and you can have difficulty breathing, and you can get fibrosis, fibrous stuff coming in the lungs, and that can be very serious. That's relatively rare, but it, but it can happen. And then sort of any other thing you can imagine has happened, any immune attack. So you can get diabetes if the pancreas is attacked. You can get... Um, uh, you know, muscle aches and other things like that. It's sort of really, really anything that, that looks like autoimmune disease. And so we talk about these trials. I know you're running the phase one trial. How do people even find out about these trials? Right. So uh, so the, the, I would say the best way to find out about trials is, is really call. Uh, if you have uh, a cancer, uh, call. You, you know, you'll reach somebody and we will figure out if, if there are trials available for you. Uh, 
One thing that I like to tell patients about is that there's a there's a website called clinicaltrials.gov. It's 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 from the US government. It is any trial that's happening in America, really in a lot of places in the world, they have to tell the clinicaltrials.gov people that the trial is open. That's that's otherwise the trial is not uh, I don't know if it's not legal, but but it won't it won't be used. So anything available will be on that website. And within that website, you can ask for trials in Connecticut, you know, trials in, you know, you can look at different states. So that's a pretty easy way to find out about, you know, a disease and if there's a trial available for that disease. And that's clinicaltrials.gov? That's right. Dr. Michael Hurwitz is Assistant Professor of Medicine in the section of Medical Oncology at Yale School of Medicine. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. And as an additional resource, archive programs are available in both audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program, and we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudette, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.